because junior VCs tend to be younger by almost definition, they kind of have more time to build context on companies. And I think that once the investment is made, oftentimes a really good junior investor can actually be, they may, out of the whole investor group, they may know the most about the business because they're spending the most time trying to do so. You are listening to The Sure Shot Entrepreneur, a podcast for founders with ambitious ideas, venture capital investors, and other early believers tell you relatable, insightful, and authentic stories to help you realize your vision. Welcome to The Sure Shot Entrepreneur. Today's guest is Ashe Sangvi. He's an investor at Haystack. Haystack is a Silicon Valley-based venture capital firm that focuses on very early-stage startup investments. Ashay, welcome to the SureShot Entrepreneur. Thanks for having me, Gopi. It's a pleasure to be here, and this is my first podcast, so I'm very excited for the opportunity. Well, I'm looking forward to asking you lots of questions about startups, venture capital, and Silicon Valley. But let's start with you. How did you come into venture capital? What attracted you to the industry? Sure. So I think in order to explain this question, I might need to back up a little bit and talk about the origin story. So originally from Phoenix, Arizona, where I spent kind of most of my childhood and formative years and adolescence. And when I was a teenager, I was interested in the internet and new businesses and, and entrepreneurship broadly. After high school, I was lucky enough to get into Harvard and to move to the East Coast. And it was a transformative experience for me as I met a lot of my best friends and was exposed to ideas and people and, and ways of thinking that continue to inspire me. At Harvard, I ended up studying a degree that they have there called social studies, which is essentially my way of scheming a lot of flexibility with my schedule. In the classroom, I studied things like history and economics, political science, social theory, etc. But outside the class, I knew that I wanted to be more exposed to the world of startups and learn about how someone, a small group of people can build something that turns into a very large organization very quickly. With that, I had two different kind of paths that ultimately brought me into the venture business. One was more directly related to ventures. When I was about halfway through college, I thought about what the functions of a venture capitalist entailed. Basically, it boils down to sourcing, selecting, winning, and helping. What within that can you do without the capital behind you? And so what I did was I thought a lot about sourcing. And so I went to a roster of, of associates and principals that I had been cold emailing basically and told them I'd send them a deal about every month with no kind of action plan as to how I'd go find those companies, but ended up meeting a few kind of early stage businesses in Boston on the East Coast and eventually helped a business called Clora get seeded. Through them, I met one of their original investors, which is a business called Notation Capital in Brooklyn. And there, when I was a junior in college, Nick Charles, who's the partner there, gave me my first break into the venture business as like an intern for him. I also got to know a gentleman in New York named Greg Hayes, who had been working at a business called Breather. And we started exploring ideas in the office furniture market together. I eventually connected him with a, a friend who had been kicking around Notation's office and helped them start a business, which is still growing, a furniture business called Branch. Going into my senior year, I had done this branch thing on the furniture side, and then I had done some investing work with Notation. But these were very non-traditional experiences relative to my peers at school. 
where folks had gone to the McKinsey's and the Goldman's of the world. I was frankly confused. I was introduced in my senior year to my now colleague, Samil Shah, who agreed to mentor me and, and help me think through different career paths and options. He eventually pulled out of me that I wanted to work in venture. If I could get in early, there was, there was real validity to that, which was not something I had heard much of before. I felt pretty inspired by that. And so he started working me in the trial by fire situation where I started getting to know the fund. He had hired another younger colleague probably a year before. After about three months, I got the opportunity to join the fund full-time right after school. I joined in July 2019. And I've been helping us deploy Haystack 5, which is a $50 million institutional vehicle. I'm happy to talk more about the fund and, and my personal journey, but kind of careers in venture and, and thinking about applying leverage and asymmetry to your own personal career is something that I, I think a lot about and continue to chase. Tell me more about that. What do you mean by asymmetry? And you also mentioned a little earlier that it was all confusing. How do you feel now and how does it all connect today? So I'll touch on the asymmetry point first. In kind of life <laughs> or, or like in, in investing, you're told to look after things that have asymmetric potential. And what I mean by that is that if you make an investment, the downside is capped. You lose your principal potentially if it doesn't work out. But the upside is 1,000x, right? The investors who have made a lot of money because of this uncapped potential on the upside. I think that not enough young people think about their careers in this way, right? Like it's seen as a very hierarchical structural thing and you climb up the ladder. What are the little things you can do, right? That if it doesn't go well, you basically wasted a month of your time. But if it goes well, it can open up new opportunities and possibilities that you would have never anticipated. I think a lot about that. And I try to always incorporate these types of things. I'm like, what's something I could do that's new and novel that won't take up too much time on my end, but if it works, it really works. And to your other point around the confusion, the confusion was guided by the fact that a lot of people, in, when you're younger, tell you not to get into investing too early, which I think is, is valid in, in many cases, right? You should want to position yourself in your career to maximize it and to be the best position you can possibly be. But I felt deep down that I had always wanted to be an, an investor potentially to understand venture capital deeply. I had now a broader sense of clarity because I've embraced that. And we'll see if it works out. I think it's very unclear and it's, it's honestly a little bit risky, but you can take chances in your 20s. How long has it been since you started practicing venture capital and becoming an investor? And what are some things that you've learned? Yeah, it's been about two years, I want to say. I'm coming up on, on two years now. I think there are definitely a lot of things I've learned. One is I've tried to spend a lot of time trying to understand what are like the attributes of really good venture capitalists. Thinking of folks like Peter Fenton from Benchmark or Fred Wilson from USV or Roger Ehrenberg from IA. And what is it that they do that makes them very good at their craft? For too long, at least when I initially started out, was I just tried to emulate like good, a good VC would do basically. But I think you ultimately have to find this Venn diagram of what works and what are you personally set up to do, right? Based off your own characteristics, motivations, ambitions, context, what is it that you can do? I'm a seed investor. I haven't been an operator. I tend to be more qualitative than quantitative. And so trying to find that nexus of like what my personal style is with what I feel works in the venture business. I think I've also learned a few different things about evaluating companies. I have a friend who says, 
The markets are easier to put analysis around than founders are, but it's more important to have judgment about founders early at seed investing. That's held up fairly accurately. Coming out of college in a very academic or cerebral environment, your analysis first, right? You think about markets and concepts and ideas, but it's harder to find a judgment filter for people. And arguably, that's, that's a lot more important. So I've, I've tried to pay attention to that more as I've grown up in the industry. What kind of startups do you invest in? What do you look for in these entrepreneurs? Can you give a couple of examples? Definitely. There are a few things. One is that at a high level, like we're not overly thematic or, or top-down or thesis-driven. Haystack is invested across sectors, industries, but we're very focused on, on early stage investing. So think pre-seed to seed. I'll start at a high level and, and talk about what we look for in founders and drill down to a few examples. A lot of people talk about looking for great founders, right? But then they just leave it at that. And I think there's not a lot of clarity or specificity in terms of what is a really good founder. So one thing I'll point to is this like outcomes-driven mindset. When you're early in a startup and you're building a startup, you kind of need to go like hunt momentum, basically. Even if the product is not developing or it's taking a while or you need to get customers, you need to find ways to cheat the feedback loop and, and build momentum in your company. I'm lucky enough to work with a founder. He's based in Toronto and has a company called Buff. His name is Peter. He's, he's always chasing kind of like, what's a very objective thing that can get done sort of the near future? And he's, he's relentless about it in this Paul Graham, like relentlessly resourceful way about always building momentum behind the company, whether it's raising capital or new hires and, and onboarding new hires or building product and product development velocity. So what does Peter's business do, Bob? So when I first met Peter, understandably, it was a bit esoteric for me. But what Bob does is they have created an abstraction layer to work with APIs in a company and using a, a technology called protocol buffers, which is basically a data serialization technology. And so if you think about a large kind of distributed engineering organization today, they have all these different APIs interacting with each other, but no real standardized way to define those APIs, consume those APIs, and manage those APIs across the organization. So Buff is, is making that easier. In the first few meetings, what do you look for in the entrepreneur? What questions do you ask and what can they do to prepare? Can you give a few tips to entrepreneurs? Sure. One is trying to tease out this authenticity of the entrepreneur. Sometimes that comes in the case of they've been in that industry for a while and they understand it and they have a deep insight into it. Other times they can just be like, hey, we didn't look for funding first and we went out and, and built this product. We're lucky enough to work with a business called Pomerium where the founder, Bobby, had just been building an open source project just on his own for about a year before we initially interacted and got to know each other. And hadn't you know thought about taking on venture funding for a while. And he, he was just doing it because he liked to do it. So that authenticity is, is one thing we look for. Another one is clarity of thought and specificity of language. So I think there's a huge difference between founders who will tell you, hey, we're going to speak to some customers soon. And a founder who tells you, I plan on speaking with five customers by Friday. That is a very, some might dismiss that as a semantic difference in language. But I actually think there's a huge difference in that because the latter shows a founder who's very outcomes-oriented, you know, detail-oriented, et cetera, which, which I look for. 
So how long does it take for you to go from the first meeting to the final meeting where you say, yes, I want to invest? Does it happen sometimes in the first meeting itself or does it take a few days, few weeks, few months? I think many times you intuitively know, potentially within the first few minutes, and a lot of great venture capitalists will tell you that. In terms of actual process, for us, the market moves quite quickly these days, and we want to be respectful of the founder's time. We can be anywhere from a few days to a couple of weeks. Ideally, there are instances, some of my favorite investments are ones where we've kind of known the founder for a while before they're raising or just getting off the ground. The actual process itself goes quite quickly when it happens, but we have the right context going into it about who that person is. The themes that you mentioned, the specificity and the clarity with which the entrepreneurs explain, I relate to a lot of those things as well. Yeah. I try to be quick in my decision-making process and I try to give a response uh, hopefully in one or two meetings, but sometimes it takes a few weeks depending on the situation and how much uh, detail is available and how much that entrepreneur has thought about. I want to be mindful of their time as well. Are there things that entrepreneurs can do to prepare ahead of coming to meet you? Or are there things they can do to be ready for a meeting with a venture capital investor like you? Yeah, I think like I tend to put more of the onus on on trying to understand the the business on myself. Obviously, I think founders it, it'd be great when when founders sort of prepare any materials, whether that a deck or increasingly common is a notion memo, etc. And I always find those helpful to review beforehand. I think founders should think about a little bit more. And I always hate to give prescriptive advice, but I, I think it comes up a lot. There's a lot of intentionality founders have around designing your product and building your product. And I think a lot more of our questions go around, how do you design other parts of what the startup is? How do you design your cap table? How do you design your go-to-market function? How do you design your team? These are all design problems in, in my mind. And so it's not like, a, oh, you need to do this and that before you meet me. It's more, it's like, I, I just want to know how, how folks have thought through these other kind of challenges outside of product and distribution and framing them as, as design challenge. Yeah, there are many things like this where if an entrepreneur tells us, here's the cap table, here's how much dilution that's acceptable to me, and here's how much I'm, I'm looking for. And by the way, once the funding happens, here's how I'm going to spend it. This is the kind of team I'm going to build. This is where the expenses uh, will occur in the next few months and quarters. That gives clarity and conviction. It's a lot easier to form conviction in companies when the information is laid out more clearly. So what kind of themes do you look for? Are there certain sectors? Are there certain industries you would like to focus on? Yeah, I in the past have been a little bit more thematic and, and top down. I'm learning <laughs> that it's it's really hard to boil down and to concrete themes. And I'm always just trying to look for kind of outlier individuals and people. But to the point, there are these cascading trends or compounding growth loops that many startups can ride that make me incredibly optimistic about the future. One is is the rise of developers. And developers is a real kind of buyer or champion of services that can scale, right? So if you think about developer tools were dismissed as something that is what were not really interesting venture backable category even a, a couple of years ago. And now are, are, it's red hot. Developer tools are essentially almost like consumer networks, right? Like you build a tool or utility for an individual that improves their productivity and efficiency. And then you monetize because you've aggregated a network of these 
within a company. And there's always ways to monetize this healthy, engaged network of people. And so you build organizational tools. And so we've been involved with Buff, as I've mentioned, which fits into that category, or a business called Octito, which provides shared development environments for individual developers within companies that abstracts a lot of the complexity of working with a technology like Kubernetes. So developer tools is, is one area that I'm, I'm quite excited about. The other one I want to get a better grip on is, is around payments and, and fintech broadly, right? Like, so if you think about the acceleration and the digitization of, of payments throughout the world, it's still expanding. And there's still a greenfield opportunity. A lot of folks in, in Silicon Valley, when they think payments, they think of Stripe and they equate the two. But payments, I don't think, is a winner-take-all industry. And there are lots of subsects of payments and interesting new payments businesses across the world. So like Mali in the Nordics, which is also like a developer-centric payments business, or Zeller in Australia and New Zealand, which is a business banking and payments company. That's an area I'm quite excited about as well. And then in general, Gopi, I think about these things in like second-order effects. So saying like, if this has been introduced recently, this primitive what then gets enabled? So something like Apple has recently, you know, I guess within the last year, released an iOS primitive called App Clips, which allows developers to create these like mini apps that people can download ephemerally on their phone for like eight to twelve hours or something like that, right? Like what new consumer experiences are enabled by that primitive? So I, I couldn't tell you, but that's kind of how I frame the world and, and opportunity. So you're looking for a lot of solutions that build the infrastructure for the future. Yes. So infrastructure for the future, plus what are things that were not possible before, but are now enabled by a new building block that, that's kind of arrived. Yes. Oh, that's very interesting. This is certainly an evolving area. We hope to see many more entrepreneurs build innovative solutions. When entrepreneurs engage with a VC firm, the common mm -hmm. misconception is that they should only talk to the partners, the decision yeah. makers. What are some things that they are missing when they do not build a relationship with uh, folks at the pre-partner level? What are some things that uh, pre-partners can do that would be valuable for entrepreneurs? Sure. I think, and some of this has been well-documented, I, I do think there is some firm specificity here. So I can't speak for, for everyone's experiences, but you know, I know at Haystack, for example, our investment team is just three of us. So, <laughs> and, and we have one partner. And that means we all make decisions fairly collaboratively and, and we all work together and look at all the investments we end up making. So it's kind of hard to skip over a, a junior person. I think in terms of what kind of junior partners or associates or principals can do, right? They can act as a real champion or, or steward of the business within the venture firm and provide a lot of context for the business for their partners who may have board responsibilities or LP responsibilities, et cetera. The other thing, and I try to focus a lot on this, is that because junior VCs tend to be younger by, by almost definition, they kind of have more time to build context on companies. Once the investment is made, oftentimes a really good junior investor out of the whole investor group, they may know the most about the business because they're spending the most time trying to do so. That kind of knowledge and, and context for that person is a useful tool for the founder to leverage, in my opinion. So what do you do when an entrepreneur tells you, well, this is great, but you know, can I talk to the partner? Yeah, I think in our case, I try to emphasize that you know we all make decisions fairly collaboratively and Ultimately, the decision does lie with the partner. And 
if there is a real want to do that, obviously I could loop in my colleague Sunil, but I'm part of the process regardless. So it's hard to skip over. You've been in venture for two years and you started with this confusion, but now there's little more clarity and there are some focus areas that you've identified. What do you really like about venture? The most interesting moments are actually after you make the investment, for me personally. And when these, I call it like the overhang of this investment decision and the weirdness and awkwardness of it, of that is gone. You could just say, what's the company to be built here, basically? And really focus on some of those company building things. I really like that first six to 12 months that you're lucky enough to spend with the entrepreneur after you make the investment to focus on, on company building. What that allows you to do too is scale the depth of your relationship with founders, who I think are the navigators of today's world. That's a super lucky position. I enjoy sourcing and, and picking and, and trying to win deals too. But this like initial, you could call it like an embryonic stage post-investment is my favorite by far. Is there something you don't like about venture? Do you have any pet peeves? I think it can be quite a transactional business at times, especially at the junior rungs. And I understand why, right? There's capital in the ecosystem and there's ways to flood to capital. And I think that attracts lots of, of different types of people who have different motives. Yeah, I, I just don't enjoy as much of that, of the deal swapping or thinking about quid pro quo. And I think there's a lot of it, but like any kind of business market or ecosystem, there's good things and there's bad things. It just comes with the job. So if you were to change one thing about venture capital, what would you do? I'm in a very privileged position, right? Like I'm a, a male who you know went to an Ivy League institution. And I think there are a lot of people in, in similar shoes who say, you know, they kind of stumbled into the industry. And I think it'd be remiss of me to say like, you know, I had some advantages coming in. And so the more kind of opportunity that people can have to learn about venture, to understand venture, to learn about startups, to understand what it takes to build a company would be more important. So I wish it was a less kind of closed clubby industry than it is today. Yeah, there's a lot of old boys network in the industry, and it's really hard to break into the industry as a new person coming from the outside. Uh, and we certainly need to be more open-minded about welcoming different types of uh, skill sets and different types of backgrounds into venture capital. Hope that changes. Yep. Well, I want to switch to another part of the discussion and ask you about your community involvement. Is there a nonprofit organization you are passionate about and which one? This is an important topic and I appreciate you asking it. So recently, there's been more attention brought to hate crimes and violence brought against Asian Americans in the United States and broadly. And I think a lot of it dispels the idea of the kind of model minority and the model minority myth. And so stop API hate. AAPI hate is something that I've increasingly sought to get involved with. And then speaking to the point of diversity inclusion within the tech ecosystem, there's things like HBCU VC, which focuses on bringing individuals from historically black um, colleges and universities you know, more into the fray and uh, on the venture side and understanding this ecosystem that folks have kind of not historically been a part of. So those are, are two areas that you know I like to spend time and, and think about. Well, Akshay, thank you so much for spending time with me and sharing your insightful stories and nuggets of wisdom. I look forward to sharing your stories with the audience and the rest of the world. Thank you, Gopi. It was, it was my pleasure and you know, I feel lucky to do it. So thank you so much. 
Thank you for listening to the SureShot Entrepreneur. I hope you enjoyed listening to real-life stories about early believers supporting ambitious entrepreneurs. Please subscribe to the podcast and post a review. Your comments will help other entrepreneurs find this podcast. I look forward to catching you at the next episode.